Well, good morning. I'm Aubrey Spears, and I'm one of the pastors here, and with Drew, I am so very glad to be with you this morning. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our reading from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. This is the second sermon in a series. We're going through uh, Revelation, and we'll cover the first half between now and the end of February, then we'll take a little break. And we'll cover the last half of the book in May and June. Our passage this morning, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, it begins with John, the author of this book, telling us in verse 9, notice it says he's on the island of Patmos. Now this is an island about 35 miles off the coast of western Turkey. And he's there, notice what it says in the last phrase of that verse. He's there on account of, because of, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It seems that some local authority in Asia Minor has deported John. They took away his rights, his possessions, and they've exiled him to this island as a punishment because of his fearless teaching. They're trying to stop him from having any effect. The result, however, is the exact opposite. Exile has given him, you see, time to pray and to reflect and now to receive the most explosive vision of God's power and God's love. Notice what it says at the beginning of verse 9. He is still a partner with the churches in Asia Minor. He's a partner with them in the suffering, right? He's suffering, they're suffering. He's still in that game with them. He's a partner with them in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance. Now, that's a strange combination. In the middle, you've got the kingdom, the reign and rule, the victory of God. And flanked on either side of it, you've got on one side suffering and on another side, patient endurance. More on that in the weeks ahead. But notice verse 10. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, if you cannot become like a child, revelation will remain foreign. But if you can descend into childhood and use your imagination, it'll help. I want you to imagine John. Just see him in your mind. He's lost everything, all his possessions, his home, his health, and he's exiled to this fortress island in the middle of the Aegean Sea. Perhaps there's other prisoners there. And he's carried on with his habit of fearlessly talking about Jesus. And some of these other prisoners, it seems, have converted. Some of these soldiers, perhaps, have converted. And just like us this morning, you know what they were doing? On a Sunday, they were gathering and they were worshiping Jesus. They were doing this on the Lord's Day. Why do they call Sunday the Lord's Day? Because when he rose from the dead, he owned it. It's the day that that tells the story of who he is. And so for centuries and millennia, Christians have done just this. They've done it when they're in exile. They've done it when they're on islands. They've done it when they're in the valleys. They've done it all, and they're doing it right now all over this world. And there they are, 
They've gathered. They're worshiping on the Lord's Day. And perhaps John is leading the worship service. And just like Drew is doing for us this morning, he's standing in front of the congregation and he's leading them in worship. And then suddenly, this worship leader hears the voice of Jesus coming from behind him. So think about this for just a moment. Because this is the way it really is. Behind the priest leading the worship service is the true high priest. The ultimate leader of the church's worship. And then notice verse 12. John turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. But notice what he sees first when he turns around. In verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw. He didn't see the voice. He didn't see the person. He didn't see Jesus. What does it say in your Bible that he saw first? Seven golden lampstands. And then in verse 13 it says, And then in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now we know from the last verse of our reading this morning, verse 20, we're told that the lampstands are the seven churches. And as we read on, we learn that the one like the son of man, this is Jesus. Three important things. And to see them, again, you've got to become like a child. You have to imagine this. Some of you still haven't done it. You've resisted. You're staying in your cold, rationalist, adult world. Now, come on. Descend. Act like Ben and Jude here. They might, you know, act, act like you're drawing this on your worship guide or something. Number one, to begin with, John meets Jesus first as the voice. His first Blush with Jesus is as a voice. Before he sees Jesus, he hears him. It's Sunday. He's worshiping Jesus with a group of Christians, and he hears Jesus speaking. That's where this whole dramatic scene starts in verse 10. It all starts with hearing. And that movement, that movement from hearing and obeying the word of the Lord to seeing him face to face, that is how it always goes. That's how it is for you and me. If you want to see Jesus... You must hear his word and obey it. And scripture is God's word. And God's word is heard first of all and most importantly in the church when the church is worshiping God. So listen to scripture in the church read and taught on the Lord's day on Sunday. But don't just listen to it. You've got to obey it. Go back to verse 3, a passage we read last week but I didn't comment on. But notice it says... Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. You can't just passively show up. You've got to take this thing we're doing right now seriously, utterly seriously. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to see him, you have to first hear him and obey him. That's the ticket. To seeing him. You've got to obey his word. And this is his word. This right here. The Bible is the word of God. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing. After John heard the word, it says in verse 12, I turn to see the voice. And what does he see? Seven golden lampstands. Okay. So John wants to see the voice. I mean, imagine... You're alone. You're afraid. You've lost everything. And your wife, your husband, your closest friend, suddenly you hear them behind you talking. Don't you want to see them? 
He turns to see the voice. But his first glimpse of Jesus, he first sees Jesus by seeing the church. It's the church that he sees. The church is the light of Jesus in the world. The church is the visible body of Jesus in the world. And we come to know Jesus by seeing the church in the world. We love Jesus by loving the church. There's a saying that goes back to the third century. No one can have God for their father who doesn't have the church for their mother. And this saying comes from passages like this all through the Bible where the Bible does not allow us to disconnect Jesus from the church. It doesn't allow us to have a churchless Jesus. It doesn't allow us to drift off into some anti-institutional, hyper-individualistic, hippy-yippy individual relationship with God where it's just you and Jesus and nobody else. The church doesn't allow that. I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't allow that. There's a, this is hard for a lot of us today because our society is fundamentally prejudiced against institutions. And rightly so. I mean, institutions have disappointed us plenty of times. And some churches have done some very bad things. Child abuse, embezzling money, taking advantage of the poor, turning a blind eye to acts of injustice. I'm sure if we took the time we could find a lot of people in this room who've experienced a lot of bad things from the church. And yet, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you want to see Jesus, you find him in the church, walking among the lampstands. That's what this verse is saying. He turned to see the voice, he saw the lampstands, and Jesus walking in the middle of them. Jesus is with his church. Now, I know some people might say, I love Jesus. I can't stand the church. And you might be thinking, oh, well, maybe these churches in Revelation, maybe they were different. Maybe they had it all together. Well, if you read the next two chapters, as we will next week, you'll discover they had their fair share of weaknesses. Now, let's put these first two points together. The first point, that before John sees Jesus, he hears him. And the second, when he does see him, he sees him in the midst of the church. As many of you know, it is hard to believe in Jesus today. Not for everybody, but for a lot of people. For many, many of us, believing in Jesus, um, Flannery O'Connor said, we have to pay for it every step of the way. We live in a society that has a polluted atmosphere. The air we breathe is the thin air of skepticism. And so if you've got doubts, if you have been um, polluted by a secular age, if it's hard for you to believe in Jesus, if you're naturally predisposed to being skeptical, if you are investigating Jesus, then I want to invite you to fake it. Try Christianity on for size. Live like it's true. Be an intentional hypocrite. In other words, come into the church. Because that's where he is. 
Pray with the church. Worship with the church. Behave like Christianity is true. Obey scripture even before you see Jesus. Even before you've drunk the Kool-Aid. Even before you've bought in. Obey Jesus because that is the only way you will see Jesus. Because the Christian faith can only be known from the inside. Be a part of the church. Be a part of this church. Jesus is here. This is where you find him. This is where you see him. But you've got to do it for real. You've got to give it a real shot. You can't just show up and kind of lollygag through it. You've got to really go for it. You've got to jump in and take the Christian life seriously if you want to know if the Christian life is for real or not. Okay, I said there were three things. I've saved the best for last. Now, get the scene in your imagination. These huge lampstands, seven of them, Jesus walking around in the midst of them. Now, remember, this is a Jew who's writing. Now, become like a child for a minute. Seven golden lampstands. John is a Jew. In the Jewish world, lampstands in a place of worship have how many lamps on each one? Seven. It's a menorah. So imagine that in your mind for a minute. Seven, seven branched lampstands. Big enough for a human to walk among. If you can picture it like a child, you see it. It's a grove of trees. And then you realize if you've read the Bible like a book, you've seen this scene before. This is where the Bible started. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Once again, at the end, we see God walking among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So here at the end of the Bible is this evocative image echoing the very beginning of the Bible. And so here at the end, we see Jesus Christ, the great lover of creation, the lover of all of us, calling out once again from the garden, longing for us, calling us, calling us from our lostness, calling us from our exile. Calling us from our hurt and our wounds. Calling us home. Now, in case you think I'm just reading into this and going way too far into my childhood, go back to the Song of Solomon, the passage that Duane read so excellently. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 through chapter 6, verse 1. You need to know the context. In the Song of Solomon, twice... The bridegroom, the lover, twice he sings an ecstatic head-to-toe hymn of praise to his beloved, the bride. First in chapter 4, and then in chapter 7. Two erotic love songs sung by the bridegroom to the bride. And right in the middle of them is the passage we had read to us. In between these two love poems, the bride is looking for her husband. Because her husband came calling for her, and she waited. Her soul failed her. She didn't respond. And then she decided to respond. And when she got up and she looked, verse, chapter 5, verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed when he spoke. I didn't respond. 
But now I'm seeking him, but I can't find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. And then in verse 7, we see her desperately searching the streets for her absent lover, her husband. And notice what happened. The watchmen, they get her and they beat her. But it doesn't stop her. She keeps looking. And in verse 8, she begs some companions to help her find the beloved. And the companions say, why should we do that? Look at you all beat up. Like, if that's what it's going to do to us, we don't want to join in this search. Why should we care? What's the big deal? Don't you know there's a lot of dudes in this world? Move on to another one. Surely there's a better. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. What is your beloved more than another? Oh, most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another that you you abjure us to do this? In, In other words, this is the most beautiful woman. She can have any catch in town. Why this one? Notice her response. She begins with his head of gold. Then she moves to his eyes. Down over his face to his arms and his body, then his legs. Then she moves back up to his mouth full of sweetness. Verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Why this one? (laughs) She's asked why this particular dude? He's the fairest of, of them all. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet swelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His his abs are polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choices of cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend or daughters of Jerusalem. He's a garden of delights. And notice how our companions respond. Oh, okay. We'll help you. Where's your beloved gone that we can help you find him? Now go back to Revelation. John's description of Jesus, he begins with the head. Then he moves to the eyes. Then the legs and the feet. Then the voice and the hands. Then the mouth. Then the face. John is saying, here's my beloved. John, who wrote the Gospel of John that started at a wedding... Where the wedding got derailed because the human bridegroom failed at his job and then the real bridegroom showed up. John is here on the island and he's riffing the song of Solomon. He's showing us, he's answering the question, why are you still worshiping him? You've been beat by the watchman. You've lost it all. Why is it worth it, John? Why are you doing this? Why should we do this? Why should we stay in the game when the might of the Roman Empire is bearing down on us? And he says, oh, let me tell you why. And he starts with the head. And he follows the same order. He's riffing and he's saying to us, if you're beat and if you're exiled and other people don't understand, he is saying, this is my beloved He is worth it. He is the fairest among 10,000. And so if you've been listening to this sermon and you're thinking, why should I care? Why should I fake it? Why should I come into the life of the church? I mean, the way the church lives, this is hard stuff. I'll get picked on. I might 
have some problems for this. Why should I do this? Why should I change my behavior? Why should I obey? What, why is it worth it? What's the big deal like the Song of Solomon? What is your beloved more than any other? If you're asking me that, if you have friends asking you that, there are so many ways to live a good life in America today. You don't need Jesus to live a good life. I've got a lot of happy, secular friends. Why can't they just cruise along? Well, John is showing us that Jesus is the garden of all delights. He is the lover beyond all lovers. He is the cosmic man. He is the captain of creation. He is embodying all of creation for himself. He is the one in whom all things hold together. In the book of Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus is first and foremost the unveiling of a lover. The lover whose face shines like the sun. And like the sun that we read about in Psalm 19, he is the bridegroom coming from his chamber, rejoicing to run his race. And if you're not convinced that he's worth it, notice what happens next. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When John sees this lover in all of his glory, he falls down struck dead at his feet. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, this lover is not only a garden of delights. This lover is life. Sheer, eternal life, and so he can give life to the dead. Because he is boundless life. He can overcome death because death with him has become not the end, but the beginning. And so John is raised from his death. John rises to a fearless life after his death in fear. You see, as the living one, Jesus died, but then he opened a door in the backside of the grave because he had been given the key to it. He has the keys of death and Hades. And at the end of Song of Solomon, the, the woman, the beloved, she is longing for her lover, the husband, the bridegroom. And she sings out, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For your love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of Yah. Literally, of the Lord, of Yahweh. Many waters cannot quench this love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for this love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Do you see it? Jesus is the living love of the Father. The love that many waters cannot quench. He is the flame of the Lord. He is stronger than death. In, 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 our passage next, in our passage last week, we heard in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, he's the firstborn of the dead. But notice what we're learning this week. He is not only the firstborn from the dead, he is the firstborn over the dead, over death, over Hades. And he has the authority to rip open the gate of Hades, to open and shut the grave. And he locks some into death, and he keeps them there, and he unlocks death for others, and he releases them, and death cannot hold them back. Why would you not want this lover? Why would you not want him in your life? 
Why, why would you not want him as a seal upon your heart when no waters and no grave can stop him? Jesus Christ is the living one. And this is why eternal and boundless and unconquerable life is in him. This is why it's worth it to pick this way among every other way. So once again, what's the big deal, you ask? And like the companions in Song of Solomon, why is your beloved more than any other? Oh, because he's the Lord of life and he is the captain of creation and he is a lover beyond all lovers. And like it says at the end, if you offered all the wealth of your house, we would despise you. If the richest person in this room got together with the second richest person in this room and they gave everything they had to buy this love, we would mock them because their value and their wealth would fall so far short of it, we would be insulted. This love is worth more than that. So go back to the context. John is exiled. He's been beat by the watchman. And like it says on the front of the worship guide, this is my beloved. This is my friend. I hope you know him too. 